we'll continue our study through the book of First Thessalonians that we're doing, and it's a very short sermon, I think, for today, because uh, the passage that I cut out is just a small one of probably four verses, so we will, uh, we will look at that. I will have the outline of the sermon up here. However, that will be on my website tomorrow itself, so you don't have to write it down. It will be on the website tomorrow, and the link to that will be on both Facebook and Twitter. So it, this is just for your reference. As I, as I take you along, uh, just look at it once in a while, because you will know where we are exactly in the passage. It's a beautiful weather, isn't it? It is. Certainly a tough weather to be standing on the pulpit. Um, Right. Maybe you've heard about this preacher who who used to preach in a church for a long time, and one day he did what I used to do some two years back, which is to sit in some Sunday school classes and see uh, what's happening in Sunday school classes. Not that I want to contribute something there, but I just want to see what's happening. So I used to sit sometimes in Junie's class and sometimes in Charlie's class also, a couple of times maybe. So this preacher did the same thing. He went to a uh, sixth grader's class and uh, he found out that they were doing a class in the Old Testament. And so he thought of asking a question. I didn't do that, but this preacher did it. He thought of asking them a question. So a class of sixth graders in a Sunday school and he looked at all of them and he said, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And uh, nobody answered. So he pointed at one guy and he asked him, who knocked on the walls of Jericho? And the guy said, I didn't do it. I don't know anybody who did it. And he was like really dismayed about the answer. He looked at the teacher and he said, what do you think about the answer? And the teacher said, I've known this kid right from his childhood. He's always been honest. If he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And he was really dismayed. He didn't know what to do. So he went to the chairman of the board, the Sunday school board. He goes to the chairman and he says, Sir, I'm, or rather brother, I'm very troubled about today. I went to the Sunday school, this class of sixth graders. I asked them who knocked on the walls of Jericho. And uh, this is what is the answer they gave me. So what do you think about it? And the chairman of the board said, let's not make a fuss about who did all this. Let's get the walls fixed first and then paid out of the general fund. It's a cute little story, but it certainly drives home the point that there are lots of men and women in churches who really don't take the word of God seriously. Now, the question definitely comes up when you see a situation like this. Is there a connection or a relationship between a genuine church and its view of God's word? Is there a relationship between God's word and the authenticity of a church. Now, these questions have been answered right in the first century itself, because in the time of the Thessalonians, in the first century AD, people who were in the Jewish synagogue in the, Thess- in the city of Thessalonica, and even some of the Gentiles there, were opposing Paul the Apostle when he took the gospel to that place. And they were saying Paul was a phony, he was not a real teacher, and therefore his message couldn't be from God. 
And so Paul was trying to refute them. He was trying to refute his critics, and he writes the book of 1 Thessalonians. So today's passage will reveal two aspects of the relationship between a genuine church and its view of God's word. So we'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 16. The epistle to the 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 16. And again, you have the outline here just to make sure that you are on the right track. And we are also on the right track. And somebody rightly said that people can endure anything when they know where it ends. So in verses 13 and 14, you have the first point that Paul is giving. The first thing, he says, a genuine church receives God's word and is obedient to it. A real church welcomes God's word and understands the importance of living by it. Now the Thessalonians received God's word and imitated other saints in suffering. And Paul narrates four aspects of it and four things about it. And we'll look at it one by one. First thing, the Thessalonians received God's word. Verse 13a, look at the first part of verse 13. And we also thank God, says Paul, constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Paul thanks God because the Thessalonians received the word. That's the word that is used. They received the word. And the Greek word there is the word paralambano, which means it is to have an external hearing. It is an external hearing that they're talking about. They heard the word being preached in a setting where teaching is possible. So when Paul was there for about three months in a synagogue and he preached elsewhere in the city the gospel of Jesus Christ, these people, they heard the gospel. They're talking about an external hearing. These people heard the gospel. And the Greek construction of the sentence clearly says, it goes on to show the impact with which Paul is writing it. He is clearly saying that what they heard is the inerrant, inspired word of God. These people received the inerrant, inspired word of God. That's the first thing that Paul says. They received God's word. Secondly, Paul says that the Thessalonians accepted God's word. Verse 13b, look at the second part of verse 13. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. Now, there's a different word that is used here. The first word for received means that they heard it. It is an external hearing. But this is the Greek word dekomai, which gives a sense of a welcome. These people didn't just hear the word of God. They welcomed the word of God into their hearts. The first thing talks about a welcoming with your ear. The second thing talks about a welcoming with your heart. So Paul is saying that they didn't just hear the word externally. They also welcomed it, dekomai, they welcomed it with their hearts. It is a hearing of the heart that he talks about. But how did they welcome the message? Here is a contrast that Paul is giving. Firstly, he talks about a negative aspect of it. He says, they did not consider it as the word of men. This is not the word of men that they accepted. They didn't consider preaching as the word of men at all. It is not another orator coming and preaching. It is not a philosophical theory that is being taught. It is not another oratory skills that are being exhibited. This is not another human religious leader, not another speaker, not mere rhetoric. What Paul was preaching was the real word of God. And secondly, 
the true character of the message you stated here. He says, you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God. It is the word of God. And there's a strong contrast here with the word but. You did not accept it. You did not accept it as man's word, but for what it really is, the word of God. There's a contrast between these two statements. It is not the word of men, although it is coming out of men. It is not the word of men, but it really is the very word of God. That exactly happens every time Paul preaches or every time any speaker stands up here to rightly exposit the word. Although you're hearing men speak from the pulpit, it is not men speaking to you. It is God's word coming to you through them. It is not actually they received it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And Paul also uses the word truly or for really for what it is. The Greek word is the word alethos which means it is the truth as opposed to falsehood. Really, what you're listening to is God's word, is what Paul is saying here. Thirdly, Paul is talking about another thing, which is God's word changed their lives. Verse 13c, God's word changed their lives, which is at work in you, believers. Look at the small phrase there, which is at work in you, believers. That's a great statement. Now, this verb which is at work in you, is used almost entirely in the New Testament to talk about supernatural work. And more often than not, it is used to talk about the supernatural work that is done by God. And here, Paul is saying that the word is doing a supernatural work in these redeemed people, in these Thessalonians. The word is not just heard. The word was not just accepted. But this word that is on the inside of them, this word that is indwelling them, is doing its work It is performing. It is energized by the power of God. And Paul is saying that it is working effectively. It is working efficiently. It is working powerfully. And it is working productively as well. Paul is saying that word of God works. And it is working in these people, the Thessalonians. And God's spirit is is he who is energizing the word of God in these people of God and performing his work. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, I don't own that book, but a friend of mine back in college gave me that book, and I just read that book once. It's a brilliant book. You have to, I don't think it's, it's available in any, in any bookstore, but I think if you get a copy of it, just take it. C.S. Lewis wrote this brilliant book called The Screwtape Letters, and in that, the storyline goes this way. Here's a senior devil. He's training the junior devil to sidetrack a man from becoming a Christian. A senior devil is writing letters to a junior devil and coaching him to sidetrack a man from becoming a Christian. And eventually, that man goes on to become a Christian. That's a different story. But the fact of the matter is, this this person is coaching through a series of letters, and they are called screw tape letters. So at one point, this junior devil, is try, as he's trying to sidetrack this Christian, he goes on and tempts this fellow to, to, do, to commit little, little sins. And he's troubled about the fact that he is unable to make him do spectacular sins, some dramatic sins, so he could go and report to his boss, just like Sam reports to Charlie, uh, just so he could go and report to his boss, the senior devil, that I've, I've made him do some, something spectacular, some spectacular sin. So the, senior, the junior devil is unable to do it, and the senior devil writes this to the junior devil. Listen to this carefully. So fascinating by C.S. Lewis. He says, but do remember, 
the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy who is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to keep the man away from the light. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He says it's a small sense. It's those little sins that will actually take you on the highway to hell when you put them all together as a cumulative effort. And God's word that is in us energizes us, works effectively in us, works productively in us, works efficiently in us to stop us from doing all these small sins as well. So three things that we talked about and that Paul is talking about. And lastly, Paul is also talking and saying that the Thessalonians suffered like other saints. Verse 14, the Thessalonians suffered like other saints. For you, brethren, became imitators of the church, churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, this introduces us to the proof of the powerful working of the word of God in the lives of those who receive and welcome and trust in it. The Greek word is the word gar, which is for, and he says he uses it as as a conjunction to make it the reason for it. He gives the reason for it, and he says this. First of all, in verse 13, he gives a general statement about the powerful working of the word of God. He says it works in us powerfully. And all of a sudden, he comes to verse 14, and he gives a specific illustration. He says the word of God is energizing you, and making you endure this suffering which are inevitable in the Christian faith. This word has produced some kind of an endurance, a sustenance within you to be able to understand what sufferings really are, even in your mind, and go through, go through these sufferings in the city of Thessalonica, just as the other brothers, other saints did in the churches in Judea. So they have become replicas of what actually happened and how things actually took place in the churches back in Judea. Here, the word in verse 14 for imitators is the word mimete, from which we get the English word mimics. And in, in the English language, it has a kind of a wrong connotation, a negative connotation, but actually in the Greek, it's, it doesn't have a wrong connotation. The word mimics is to, is to be a replica of something, is to be an exact follower of somebody. So if somebody is doing a right thing and following Christ, you become their mimic, you become their replica, you're doing the right thing. So the Thessalonians were becoming replicas and models in suffering to those people in Judea, the saints who are suffering as well. And I talked about this in my last sermon that I gave. And the apostle compared the problems that these people in Thessalonica were facing with the problems that people in Judea were facing as well. And he points out this. He says, the people in Judea and the people in Thessalonica. He's talking about two different geographical locations, but then he's talking about one spiritual reality. He says, both of them are in Christ and both of them are in suffering. No matter what your geographical location is, the one thing that is in common for all of us in churches is that we are in Christ and 
Suffering is an inevitable thing, is what Paul is saying when you become a Christian here. So four things that Paul says. Number one, he says that the Thessalonians received God's word. Number two, they accepted God's word. And then God's word changed their lives as well. And then they became imitators of the other churches in Judea. We need to handle God's word with utmost care. No matter what capacity you may be serving in the church, no matter what capacity you may be in, in church or in any ministry, we need to, we need to have utmost care in handling God's word. The story is told of a man who went to a pastor. He went to his pastor and he said he didn't read the word anymore because he couldn't memorize it. And the pastor said, what do you say? I don't want to read the word anymore because I can't memorize anything. So I read the word, but I just forget it. I can't memorize it, so I'm going to stop reading the word. So the pastor thought this is the right time to teach him a lasting lesson. So he said, uh, do you have 10 minutes? And the man said, yes, I have 10 minutes. So there was a wicker basket, a basket full of holes that was lying right next to him. He said, can you pick up that basket and hold it, hold it under a tap for 10 minutes? He said, uh, I can do that, but I don't want to insult your, insult your intelligence. It can't hold water. The water is going to run through. And the, man, the pastor insisted, do you have 10 minutes again? The man said, yes. Can you hold this basket under the tap for me for 10 minutes? And the man, the, uh, the argument went back and forth, and the man reluctantly picks the basket. And then he goes, opens the tap, puts it in the tap for 10 minutes, and all the water runs through. And then he gleefully comes to the pastor. He shows the pastor the basket, and he says, Pastor, I told you, it can't hold water. And the pastor looks at him and says, but you've got to admit, it's much cleaner now. It's much cleaner now. The word of God may not stay in your heart or in your mind sometimes. You may not be able to memorize it, but as it goes through you, it cleanses you. It certainly makes you purer. And so here's a, here's a question that I want to ask CBF, which is my beloved church. How do we handle the word of God here in our church? How do the preachers and teachers and Sunday school teachers even, and even men who teach their families, handle the word of God in our church? Because the church or your family or your Sunday school kids will only get to listen to the word if you preach the word in the first place. How do we handle God's word in our church? I think it is a responsibility of every preacher who stands up here to make sure that the church gets to hear the word week after week. The church gets to hear the word of God week after week. So let me give you three principles to all the preachers and teachers who stand up here, even Sunday school teachers and even men who teach in churches. Let me give you three principles as application. Number one is a principle of priority. It is a principle of priority. And it is this, while the church may have other critical responsibilities, and there are a lot of responsibilities in churches, the primary responsibility of any church is to make sure that the word is preached right in the church, that people get to hear the word of God right. It is to make sure that the word is preached right as well, because it is so foundational to the Christian faith. It is so foundational that everything else falls on it, especially from the standpoint of truth versus error, from the standpoint of discipleship, from the standpoint of authority, direction, motivation, and even life itself. Now, Christ is the foundation of the church, and what we get to know about Christ is found in Scripture. 
So we have to know and, and realize and understand God's word. Our number one priority should not be social reforms. It should not be social movements. It should not be about finances, as important as they are. It should not be women's group. It should not be music even. Our number one priority in church should be on the word of God, which is foundational to everything that happens in the church. The great preacher John Stott once made the statement. You know, uh, I've always wanted to meet him, but now he's with the Lord. I think he went to be with the Lord when he was 91, but we all for sure will, will be blessed by some good debates and arguments in heaven with him. Just a brilliant theologian, great expositor of the word. He once made this comment, and it's, it's a little paragraph. Listen to me carefully. Every word of it is true. Listen to what he says. I still believe that preaching is the key to the renewal of the church. I'm an impenitent believer in the power of preaching. I know all the arguments against it, that the television age has rendered it useless, that we are a spectator generation, that, we are, that people are bored with the spoken word, disenchanted when any communication by spoken words alone. All these things are said these days. Nevertheless, when a man of God stands before the people of God with the word of God in his hand and the spirit of God in his heart, you have a unique opportunity for communication. I fully agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, that the decadent periods in the history of the church have always been those periods marked by preaching in decline. Did you hear that? The decadent periods of any church history have always been those periods where there was a decline in preaching. He says this is a negative statement. The positive counterpart is that churches grow to maturity when the word of God is faithfully and sensitively expounded to them. If it is true that, the human, that a human being cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God, then it's also true of churches. Churches live, grow, and thrive in response to the word of God. I have seen congregations come alive by the faithful and systematic unfolding of the word of God. This is a man who has visited some 150 countries and would have spoken some 20,000 sermons in his lifetime saying, I visited all these countries, I've seen all of it in Christian life, the only thing that is foundational to the church is the preaching of the word of God. That's the first principle, the principle of priority. Keep preaching as a priority, both in the church, in your home, and even in your small cell groups, and even uh, in your Sunday school as well. Secondly, is the principle of careful preparation. It is a principle of careful preparation. And this careful preparation depends on three things. Number one, it depends on your spiritual gifting, for sure. Number two, it depends on your uh, personal study and training as well. And number three, it depends on your experience, your skill, and, and uh, your maturity as well. But I say this to you, and I want to speak to your heart. This is straight from the heart. Listen to me, please. If you think you're a gifted preacher, or your gifting is into preaching and teaching of the word of God, And if you want to do any favor to the church through that gift, please equip yourself at least with the basics of how to prepare a sermon and how to preach a sermon as well. The least we can do as people who are gifted in preaching and teaching is to equip yourself as to how to prepare a sermon and how to preach a sermon as well. So in technical words, I'm talking about both hermeneutics, 
which is the art and science of interpreting the word, and homiletics, which is the art and science of preaching the word, both of them. I'm not saying you need to do an in-depth Greek exegesis. No, that's not what I'm saying. But at least we need to get the point of the text right. At least get the point of the text right. Because people want to hear the word of God. You know, when I come here on a Sunday morning, and I sit there, and somebody stands up here to preach the word, may I say this to you with all my heart, I want to hear a word from God. I want to hear a word from God. And I come here on a Sunday morning expecting to hear the word from God, or any word from God. And the word of God is only heard when the preacher gets the point of the text right. Did you hear that? The word of God is only heard by the congregation when the preacher gets the point of the text right. Because God's word is not found in all of the content of the text. God's word is to be found in the intent of a given passage. And unless you get the intent of the passage, you haven't preached the word of God to the congregation. You only preach what you think is the word of God and people haven't heard the word of God. And I have been several times disappointed, to be honest. So please, if you're somebody who stands up here, if you're somebody who teaches your family, if you're somebody who teaches Sunday school, please make adequate preparation. Do whatever it takes. Consult commentaries or consult people who are adept at it. Talk to the elders about it or do anything to get the point of the text right. Because I say this again to you, God's word is to be found in the intent of the text and not in all of the context that a text can give you. And secondly, you know, especially Charlie, uh, he tells us at least two, three months in advance, I guess, or at least one month in advance. So you have one month to prepare. Please don't do a Saturday night special. If you do a Saturday night special, even in Sunday school, it'll show up and people will get to know, even the kids will get to know that you weren't prepared well. Don't do a last minute preparation because the more time you spend with the word, the more time you spend in preparation, the more will God speak, the more God will speak to you about the passage. The more the illustrations are in your mind that you can plug into it, the more the applications are that will come to your mind and you can save them to put what the right applications are into your manuscript. So spend a lot of time. So first thing is the principle of priority. The second thing is the principle of careful preparation. Thirdly, is the principle of faithful proclamation. Because of the very nature of the Bible it's, and its priority, there needs to be adequate room for its proclamation. There needs to be adequate room for its proclamation. And what I see happening today is that the proclamation of the word is bumped and everything else is taking priority in churches. For example, social reforms are taking priority. And as a result, what happens is that we have people in churches who are biblically and doctrinally illiterate. We have people in churches who are biblically and doctrinally illiterate. And I want to say this to you. There's only one thing that can replace great preaching. You know what is it? It is greater preaching. There's only one thing that can replace great preaching that is greater preaching. Nothing can replace preaching. And history has proven that churches can exist. Listen to me, please. History has proven that churches can exist 
without buildings, without liturgies, even without creeds, without music, without Sunday schools, without women's group, no church can ever possibly exist without the preaching of the word of God. No church can possibly exist without the preaching of the word of God. Preaching has the power to do like nothing else can do in a church. And the time has come, I think, for us to look at ourselves as a church. The time has come to put preaching back in its rightful place and bring a reformation, starting from our church and even the churches the world over. And that begins, I want to tell you preachers, that begins with the faithful proclamation of the word by you. That begins with the faithful proclamation of the word of God by you. You're given an opportunity to, to, to speak here. Please take it seriously. And please make sure people get to hear the word week after week. So in verses 13 and 14, we saw that a genuine church receives God's word and is obedient to it. Then Paul gives and moves on to a second point, And that is in verses 15 and 16. And these verses say that a genuine church trusts in God's word and endures persecution. A real church never looks back during suffering. It never looks back during suffering. Now look at this. Paul says, the opponents reject God's word by being hostile and hindering the preaching of it. And he says three things about the opponents. Number one, the first thing, they were murderous and hostile men. Look at verse 15. They were murderous and hostile men. Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now listen to me. This is the only place in the inspired writings. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul kind of blames or talks about Jew, the Jews being responsible for the death of Jesus. Everywhere else in the New Testament, what is responsible for the death of Jesus? Our sins. This is the only place in the New Testament where the Jews, Paul says, are responsible for the death of Jesus. Elsewhere, it's, it's all the sins of the people. For Christ died for our sins. He, he bore our sins and his body on the tree. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. It's all about sins. But here and in this passage alone, Paul says, the Jews are to be blamed for it. And he's not talking about the entire Jewish population. He's talking about a segment of humanity at that period who were opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Thessalonica, the primary opponents were the Jews as well, along with the Gentiles. And he's talking about that section of the Jewish population. And he says, their actions are displeasing to God and were not in the best of interests of all men because they were obstructing the spread of the gospel and not letting men hear the preaching of the word of God. Now, it is quite normal for all of us to face persecution as a church. It is quite normal as a Christian to face persecution because... It is simply the continuation of Satan's and the world's fight against God's plan that is revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave us salvation. So that's the first thing that Paul is saying. They were murderous and hostile men. Second, they hindered the preaching of God's word. Verse 16a, they hindered the preaching of God's word by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. You see, on the one hand, the Thessalonians were imitating the apostles. On the other hand, these were people who were opposing the Thessalonians. The, the Jews were opposing the Thessalonians from spreading the word of God. 
from preaching the word of God to people. And Paul makes an amazing indictment and he says, the Jews are people who are opposing and displeasing to God. They oppose men, and they, sorry, they, they oppose God and they are hostile to men as well. And primarily, their opposition to God is in the fact that they were stopping Paul and the other apostles from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so all people could hear and be saved. And Paul is saying that, he is host- that these Jews are hostile. In fact, the New Testament, uh, I'm sorry, the, the extra New Testament writer, a man by the name of Tacitus, once made the statement about Jews. He said, toward every people, they feel only hate and enmity. Toward every people, they only feel hate and enmity. But this is not to say that the Jews are always hateful. It is just to say that they didn't like the preaching of the gospel because they were religiously prejudiced and they didn't want the gospel to spread uh, to other parts of the society and other parts of the world so people could be saved. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 4, right? When the apostles were preaching the gospel, they were brought into the temple, I'm sorry, the Sanhedrin, and they were pulled there, and they were asked not to preach about Jesus Christ and the gospel. They go out again, they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're brought this time, they're thrashed, and they're warned again not to preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's always that happens with the Jews. They kill the prophets, they thrash the prophets, they obstruct the apostles, and ultimately they kill the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So firstly, Paul said they were murderous and hostile men, and Paul also says they hinder the preaching of God's word, but ultimately, thirdly, Paul says they face dire consequences. Verse 16b, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So as always to measure, uh, to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them at last. By their opposition of the gospel, these people are, are measuring up sins for themselves. And the wrath of God will one day be poured upon them. Now Paul is primarily talking about the period of tribulation when there will be massive wrath of God that will be poured upon the Jews. The tribulation is going to come. It is future. However, Paul is talking in past tense here. He says, the wrath of God has come. Although he's, meaning, he's talking about the tribulation, why is he using past tense here? Remember how our Lord Jesus spoke in terms of the kingdom coming? Remember how John the Baptist spoke in terms of the kingdom coming? He said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is 5,000 years away. At hand. The first message of Jesus when he spoke in the Gospel of Mark, is the same thing. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the kingdom has come in the sense that the king has come in all his fullness, and he has offered the kingdom, but the Jews rejected it in the same way, and there's a kingdom that will be coming in fullness in the future. In the same way, the wrath of God has come upon them because they opposed the gospel and they were the opponents of the gospel. But the fullness and the full manifestation of the wrath of God will be showed and will be clearly seen on the Jews in the tribulation period. And that's what Paul is saying. They will pay for their rejection of the Messiah and they will face dire consequences. We need to stand together as a church when we go through persecution. And that's the application I have. We need to stand together as a church 
when we go through persecution. We must stand together in times of difficulty and encourage one another. And let me give you three applications here, and then we'll, I'll bring it to a close. First thing, this is just to encourage you. First thing, if you're going through suffering today, please realize that your experience and mine is not new or isolated. Your experience and mine is not new or isolated. The Thessalonians were suffering persecution from the Jews and the other Gentiles. There were Christians who suffered before us. There are Christians who are suffering with us, and there will be Christians who will be suffering after us. So this is a word of encouragement to all of us who suffer. We are not the first ones. This is not new, and our experience is not anything that is isolated. Number two, you will never be exterminated by suffering. Suffering is not going to eat you up. Suffering may not kill you permanently. If anything, it will refine you and purify you and get you confirmed more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the scripture reminds us that believers are saved to the utmost and that the unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ will experience God's wrath to the utmost. Warren Wearsby says this. Now listen to this quote, please. Here is one of the great values of the local church. We stand together in times of difficulty and encourage one another. It was when Elijah isolated himself from the other faithful Israelites that he became discouraged and wanted to quit. Paul sent, one reason Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica was to encourage the believers. A lonely saint is very vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. We need each other in the battles of life. We need to stand together as a church in terms of persecution. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The passage basically says this. A genuine church receives God's word, is obedient to it, trusts in it while enduring persecution. A, a genuine church receives God's word and is obedient to it, trusts in it while enduring persecution. A real church accept God, accepts God's word for what it is and then it stays close to the word with the message of the word in rough times as well. So number one, a genuine church receives God's word and is obedient to it. The second one, a genuine church, it's right there, a genuine church trusts in God's word and endures persecution. Let me finish with a cute little story. I think it will sum it all up about how the word of God works in our lives. The story is told of a professor who went to Fiji Islands. You know, all of us know that uh, Fiji was a people where they were barbarians. They, were, they used to eat people. And so this professor goes to Fiji. He was antagonistic to the Christian faith. And by the time he had reached there, uh, they had become Christians. The Fiji, the people in Fiji were, were Christians. So he talked to the local leader there, and he said, you know, I'm a professor of such and such, from such and such a university. These people have tricked you. The Christian missionaries have tricked you. Uh, we have made so many advancements in science and technology, and this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is a belief from bygone era. You shouldn't have believed it. How can a man who died on the cross come and save you? This is all nothing. Uh, so just, just don't bother about it. And the leader, he didn't even flinch. He looked at the man, professor, and he said this. Professor, you see the big rock there? And the professor says, yes. We used to take our victims and bang their heads against that rock and kill them. And then you see the furnace there next to it? And the professor says, yes. 
we used to take those victims and boil them and burn them and eat them up as well. If it weren't for the love of Jesus Christ and the message of the Bible that transformed us, you would have been here on our plates for supper tonight. If it weren't for the message of Jesus Christ that transformed us and the message of the word of God that has transformed us and is living in us, you would have been on our plates for supper tonight. Thank you for your patience and let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your word once again. We want to thank you because it's precious to us. It's sweeter than honey to us, O Lord. We want to thank you for speaking to us so clearly from your word. Especially about how important it is and how foundational it is to the life of a church. Help each one of us, no matter what capacity we may be in, O Lord, in our church, help each one of us to understand the primacy of God's word. Help each one of us to take it seriously. Help each one of us to live by it as well, O Lord. Father, we want, to, we want to pray, O Lord, that you would affect this sermon into the lives of each one of us, even as we meditate on it and think about it more and more, O Lord. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us a renewed commitment for, in each one of us to the Word of God and help us to realize and take the Word of God for what it is, the very Word of God, inspired and inerrant. And we submit the rest of the activities of the week that each one of us has in our lives, O Lord, into your hands. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless each one of them and give it to us, O Lord, so we may glorify your name in everything that we do. And until we meet the next time, O Lord, help us to glorify uh, your Son in all that we do in our lives. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray.